Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and for this episode, I'm doing that thing that always drives me crazy with other podcasts and replaying an old show. Before you all jump to the next podcast in your playlist and discuss, though, I do have a couple of good reasons for doing this that will give you some idea of what to expect from Voyages over the next few months. The first reason is that mid-October through Thanksgiving is the busiest time of fall semester for me, so I'm giving myself a mid-season break. This is also why I didn't have an episode in the second half of October, in case you'd picked up on that. Besides giving me some time to focus on my teaching, this will also give me a chance to go back and work on some things that have been on my to-do list for quite a while. If you've been to Voyage's website lately, you know that it's in desperate need of updating, which I'll finally have the bandwidth to do. And I'll also look into establishing a broader social media presence for the show, so keep your eyes peeled for that as well. My second reason for re-airing this episode, on London and the sites that show the development of the theory of evolution by natural selection, is that it's the perfect prologue for the seasonally appropriate series I have in mind for December. I don't want to give too much away, but one of the destinations in this episode will also figure prominently in the upcoming series, though in a very different context. If I've piqued your curiosity, watch your podcast feed in the days after Thanksgiving, while I introduce the topic and kick off the second half of Season 2, which will run through early March. For now, though, enjoy this re-airing of The Voyage After the Beagle. On a stormy October day in 1836, Her Majesty's ship Beagle docked in the Cornish port of Falmouth and disembarked her most famous passenger, the young naturalist Charles Darwin. Twenty-two years later, Darwin and his colleague Alfred Russell Wallace presented their theory of natural selection, an idea that did more than any before it to make sense of the natural world and that remains at the core of biology today. The story of how Darwin developed his theory is one of the most frequently told in all of science, but the most interesting part is often left out. The 22 years between the Beagle's return and the presentation of natural selection at London's Linnaean Society in 1858. Darwin, it turns out, didn't leap ashore in Falmouth with a fully formed conception of natural selection. Instead, he had a world's worth of observations. Fossils from South America, birds from the Galapagos, coral reefs in the South Pacific, and a glimmer of an idea. It took over two decades of observing, experimenting, collaborating, and thinking for Darwin to take that glimmer and develop it into a theory that would shed light on the great diversity of life on Earth and the forces that shape it. The story of those two decades is not only the story of one of science's most important ideas, but of how science works, and as it happens, you can walk in Darwin's footsteps every step of the way in and around his home for the rest of his life, the city that was then the center of the scientific world. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and on this episode we'll be journeying to London to track the evolution of natural selection from observation to experiment to theory. It's a journey that will take us to one of the world's great museums, to the Kentish countryside, and to the society under whose roof modern biology was born. Join me now as we embark on the voyage after the Beagle. For millennia before Charles Darwin sailed from England aboard the Beagle, 
Cultures as diverse as the Zuni in classical China had recognized the fact that species can change through time. European science had begun to warm to this idea well before Darwin's birth. His grandfather Erasmus was one of the first people in Britain to write about this then-radical concept. French scientists in particular had made huge strides, but the process that caused evolution to happen remained a mystery. Though he would have been aware of the debates taking place among the naturalists of Paris, London, and Edinburgh, Darwin didn't set out to solve the biggest puzzle in 19th century biology. His main motivation for circling the globe aboard the Beagle seems to have been a sense of adventure, and his scientific training at Cambridge made him more of an authority on rocks and fossils than on living flora and fauna. Ironically, it was this expertise in geology that would steer Darwin onto the path towards answering biology's most important question. As luck would have it, the bulk of the Beagle's time at sea was spent along the coast of Argentina, one of the best places in the world for discovering fossils of ancient mammals. During his excursions inland, particularly through the Pampas, the vast grasslands east of Buenos Aires, Darwin came across many such fossils, most of which were soon boxed up and en route to London. Before he shipped his specimens, though, Darwin studied and sketched them in keen detail, and as he did so, he made note of their many unusual features. His journal and his book, The Voyage of the Beagle, make it clear that this is where his interest in evolution began, inspiring his notebook sketch that still gives every historian of science goosebumps, a tree-like diagram depicting related species accompanied by the two-word phrase, I think. Darwin had taken the first steps of the scientific process, observing a pattern in nature and asking why it existed. And what exactly were those observations? You can see for yourself in London's Natural History Museum, where most of these specimens now reside. The Natural History Museum and its founder, Sir Richard Owen, had a complex relationship with Darwin. Owen was the greatest anatomist of his day, and the scientist that described most of the fossils being sent back from South America. He had also become a staunch opponent of natural selection, and built his new museum to look like a cathedral, highlighting the divine influence he saw in nature. After Owen's death, the museum would become one of the world's leading centers for research on evolution, and one with a significant advantage of housing so many of Darwin's fossils and other specimens. Appropriately, if you're visiting in pursuit of this evolutionary legacy, you should enter the building not through Owen's giant church doors on Cromwell Road, but through the much more modest exhibition road entrance on the museum's east side. This has the added benefit of saving you a potentially long wait in line, though if you leave England without experiencing at least one interminably long queue, have you really visited England? Once through the doors, look up above the coat check and you'll see Darwin's pride and joy, the giant hoofed mammal Toxodon from Mercedes, Uruguay. Unlike many of the fossils discovered by Darwin, the bones of Toxodon were something completely new and would become the basis for the first description of this bizarre animal. The original bones are too fragile and too important to be on public display, but the cast skeleton here gives you a great sense of just why Toxodon is so weird. It looks, superficially, like a hippo. Large body, short but strong legs, hooves, and a hulking skull. Look at the front of the skull and you'll see what really fascinated Darwin. Its front teeth don't look like what you'd see in most hoofed mammals, instead looking more like the oversized, gnawing incisors of a rodent. Was Toxodon a rodent that had grown to the size of a hippo, or a hippo-like animal with rodent-like teeth? Darwin seems to have preferred the first explanation, but regardless of its ancestry, this was an animal that seemed to blend traits from many different groups of mammals, which fit right in with an evolutionary view of nature. 
It turns out the Toxodon was neither a rodent nor a hippo, but a member of a group distantly related to horses and tapirs that lived only in South America, making it more unusual than even Darwin realized. Head towards the rest of the museum, though, and you'll find yourself face to face with an animal that was even more amazing, and they'll have no doubts as to its origins. Leading from the east end of the museum to its vaulted central hall is an absolutely glorious gallery lined with fossil marine reptiles, those crown jewels of the British fossil record. Looking more than a little out of place at one end of this passageway is the skeleton of an elephant-sized beast propping itself up on two massive legs against the branch of a tree. This is Megatherium, an animal that in the Victorian era had the same celebrity status as Tyrannosaurus and Velociraptor do today. If you know what to look for, there's no secret as to Megatherium's ancestry. Its large, curved claws are the clearest clue, but its flattened face and its teeth, which lack the hard enamel that nearly every other toothed animal has, leave no doubt. This is a sloth. In fact, Darwin found fossils of four sloth species in South America, but a Megatherium skull fragment from Bahia Blanca, Argentina, was the most impressive. It certainly impressed the young Englishman, it was a gifted enough naturalist to recognize what it was, and that its size and its place of discovery, on the same continent where modern tree sloths still live, were compelling bits of evidence for evolution. After all, whether giant ground sloths evolved from small, tree-dwelling ancestors, as Darwin likely presumed, or whether the reverse is true, as modern evidence suggests, it only makes sense that the two should live in similar areas. Likewise, you would expect sloths both great and small to retain features inherited from an earlier ancestor, the same way that members of a family might trace a particular eye color or facial feature back many generations. Before the beagle ever left South America and started its long journey home by way of the Galapagos Islands, fossils like Megatherium and Toxodon had revealed to Darwin a clear pattern in nature, one that could best be explained by species evolving through time. It was then that he began what would become his decades-long inquiry into exactly how this process worked, and many of the specimens he collected on the journey would become lines of evidence in the argument that he was beginning to put together. You can see several of these specimens in the Natural History Museum, most impressively in the form of the many marine animals he preserved in alcohol. While the museum itself is free, it's well worth spending a few pounds for one of the behind-the-scenes tours of these so-called spirit collections. Not only out of historical interest, but because where else can you get so close to giant squid, Komodo dragons, and coelacanths? You can also see many fossils collected by other paleontologists that further flesh out the South American fossil fauna that so fascinated and inspired Darwin. But the clearest link between the Beagle's voyage of discovery and the years of experimentation and interpretation that were to follow sits above the museum's central hall in its treasures gallery a trove of milestones from scientific history that will no doubt be a mainstay of this podcast. Among these are actual bones from Darwin's Toxodon, but the link to the work that would come to dominate his life is represented not by a fossil, but by the bones and feathers of a much more familiar animal, a pigeon. Darwin wasn't alone among Victorian gentlemen in raising pigeons but it was far more than a hobby for him. Both on the Beagle and among the learned societies of London, he had observed and discussed patterns in nature that only made sense in the light of evolution, and he had begun to come up with an educated guess, a hypothesis, as to how this process might occur. What he needed was space to test this hypothesis, and he found this not in the city, but to the south in the small village of Down, in the county of Kent. In 1842, 
He and his family moved into Down House, and he devoted his life to gathering evidence to test his ideas. The house and its gardens are still there, administered by English heritage and easily accessible by suburban train and bus. Just don't make the same mistake I did. Down is still remote enough that you can't necessarily count on cell reception to hail an Uber back into town. Besides being a wonderful slice of English village life, you can enjoy a real ale at the pub Darwin frequented and see the plaque in his honor on the side of the old stone church. Down preserves a landscape that played an outsized role in the history of how we understand the world. To understand why, I need to quickly introduce the concept of natural selection, which can be reduced to a surprisingly simple four steps. First, every population of organisms has variation in it. We can see this most easily within our own species, but any plant, animal, or fungus will be unique from other members of its species in some way, and probably in several ways. Second, some of an organism's traits might be advantageous or disadvantageous. Dark hair might help a mouse hide from predators, say, or an especially large, flashy tail might help a peacock breed with more peahens. If, as Darwin presumed, resources such as food, living space, or even access to mates are limited, organisms with traits that give them an advantage in gaining those resources will, on average, live longer and produce more offspring. Third, if, and only if, an advantageous trait can be passed on from generation to generation, that trait will become more and more common in the population through time, as more and more individuals with it survive and reproduce. Dark-colored mice will produce more dark-colored mice, and flashier peacocks will produce sons that are also flashy, and after a while, you'll have populations of mostly dark-colored mice and colorful peacocks. Fourth, if you play this process out over a long enough time, you'll see significant change in the population, perhaps even changing so much that it evolves into a new species. It's a slow process, but given enough time, millions of years, it could explain all the patterns Darwin had observed. It would explain the weird blend of traits in animals like Toxodon, and the presence of shared features in Megatherium and tree sloths. It would, in fact, explain more about the staggering diversity of life on Earth than any idea before it. But Darwin knew how controversial this notion would be, and that he needed to support it with every line of evidence he could muster. Having completed the first two steps of the scientific process, making an observation and coming up with a hypothesis to explain it, it was time to move on to the crucial third step, experimentation. The nerve center of research at Downhouse was the study, which has been restored to its appearance during Darwin's life and contains much of his original furniture and equipment. You can get a sense for Darwin's absorption in his work from his chair, mounted on wheels for greater ease of movement around the room, his eclectic collection of specimens, barnacles became particularly important to his work, and his scientific equipment. If you really want a sense of what his experiments entailed, though, you need to head outside to the gardens, where his most impactful studies of the natural world took place. Darwin clearly loved nature, and his enthusiasm led him to carry out experiments on topics as diverse as plant growth and soil formation by worms. It's the studies directly related to natural selection, though, that I want to focus on. With his hypothesis in hand, Darwin could begin to make predictions about what the results of a given experiment should be, and then see if his results supported his hypothesis. Almost without exception, they did. Take, for example, a simple but elegant test of his suggestion that organisms compete for limited resources and that some organisms are better equipped to do so than others. He cleared a small patch of the downhouse lawn, allowed it to become colonized by local plant life, 
and then waited to see how many of these species actually survived. Just as his hypothesis suggested should be the case, the 20 species that occupied the plot at the beginning of the experiment had dwindled to only 11 within a year. Darwin's pigeons constituted a longer-term experiment, this time focused on heredity and changes in populations through time. Again, his hypothesis allowed him to predict that, by selectively breeding pigeons with particular heritable traits, he could cause those traits to become more common in successive generations. Once again, this prediction was borne out and his hypothesis supported. English Heritage has recreated several of these experiments on the downhouse lawn, as well as the kitchen garden and greenhouse where Darwin delved into a topic that obviously fascinated him, the relationship between insects and plants. He was particularly interested in pollination and cultivated several species of flower that showed evidence of having evolved hand-in-hand with their insect pollinators, as well as carnivorous plants that had evolved a more lethal relationship with insects. The greenhouse remains alive with these species today, and one of them in particular, the comet orchid from Madagascar, shows just how far natural selection had come as an idea. The flower of this trumpet-like orchid is elongated and seemingly evolved alongside a pollinating insect with an extremely long proboscis. However, no such insect was known at the time, leading Darwin to predict that a long-tongued moth would be discovered on Madagascar capable of pollinating the orchid. A moth meeting this exact description was described in the early 20th century. The orchid and moth story shows how Darwin's idea itself had evolved. While we may never know exactly when Darwin first formulated his hypothesis, and realistically it probably came together piece by piece, not in a single eureka moment, he clearly had it in mind when he began his experiments at Downhouse. No one was more aware than him that if his predictions were incorrect, he'd have to head right back to the drawing board, and he'd be no closer to understanding the workings of evolution. As experiment after experiment supported his hypothesis, though, it ceased to be simply a possible explanation, and one that seemed more and more like a scientific fact that could be used to predict and explain patterns in nature. That is, a theory. It wasn't just experiments that helped Darwin make this transition from hypothesis to theory. He needed a place where he could spend time thinking, connecting the results of his studies with observations he'd made on the Beagle and with work being done by other scientists. This place was the Sandwalk, a path leading out the garden gate at Downhouse, along a meadow, and circling through a dense wood. Every day at midday, Darwin would walk this loop five times, sometimes with his children alongside him, but usually alone. You can still stroll in Darwin's footsteps along the Sandwalk, And as someone who also relies on daily walks to clear my thoughts and give me a fresh perspective on the world, doing so has been one of the great travel experiences of my life so far, tempered only slightly by one of the rainiest English springs in decades. The growth of Darwin's ideas also took place back in the study, where the portraits on the wall, the overloaded bookshelves, and the piles of letters and writing materials on the work table show that Downhouse, despite its location in the Kentish countryside, was very much a part of the blossoming British scientific community. His experiments, his reading, and his correspondence all played a huge role in testing and fine-tuning natural selection, which by the early 1850s was well-vetted and ready for publication. Darwin didn't publish it, though, possibly because his detail-oriented mind was always looking for yet another line of evidence to include, and possibly because he knew how controversial it would be. In 1856, though, 
he received a letter that would jolt him out of his rut and lead him to finally announce his findings to the world. This is when Alfred Russell Wallace comes on the scene. Wallace's name is not as familiar as Darwin's, but it should be. Unlike Darwin, he was not born into privilege and didn't have the advantages of his more famous contemporary. While he was undeniably a thorough and thoughtful researcher, Darwin also was able to accomplish all he did because he didn't have to work for a living. Wallace did, but fortunately his work was collecting natural history specimens for wealthy clients, which brought him into very direct contact with the products of natural selection. Wallace had also traveled to South America, to the Amazon, where he was already thinking about the mechanisms that allowed evolution to occur. Catastrophically, the ship which was to bring him and his collections back to England sank, destroying almost all his Amazonian specimens and nearly sending Wallace to a watery grave. In the 1850s, he'd shifted his collecting to Indonesia, where, luck never being on his side for too long, he became seriously ill. During his long recovery, he spent his time thinking about the patterns he'd observed during his travels, and in particular about how the wildlife between New Guinea and the Malay Peninsula varied from island to island. In doing so, he came up with a theory of natural selection nearly identical to the one Darwin had been developing for decades. Knowing of the older scientist's reputation, but not his independent development of natural selection, Wallace sent him a letter asking whether there was anything to his idea. There was, of course, and it was presumably in the study at Downhouse that Darwin opened Wallace's fateful 1856 letter and realized that, as momentous as his theory was, it was an idea whose time had come, and that if he didn't publish it, someone else would. Two years later, he and Wallace jointly presented their paper on natural selection, and modern biology was born. Much as I'd love to be able to describe all the sites around London that tell Wallace's side of the story of natural selection, a combination of social standing and luck have conspired to make Darwin's trail the easier one to follow. Wallace lived for a while in the borough of Croydon, and his house is still there, graced with one of London's famous blue plaques. The Treasures Gallery at the Natural History Museum displays some of the butterflies he collected, but the most significant memento of Wallace's contribution to evolutionary biology is a portrait that would not be painted until decades after his death. It was commissioned to hang alongside an older portrait of Darwin by the Linnaean Society, the place where natural selection was announced to the world. Located at Burlington House, just west of Piccadilly Circus, the Linnaean Society is much more publicly accessible than many of London's famously stodgy academic societies. You can't just wander in, but, at least when the world isn't in the grip of a pandemic, the society does open its doors for public talks and tours. The talks are free. I got to attend one by a botanist from Kew Gardens on the plants of the Quran. There's a small fee for the tours, but it's well worth it if you have any interest at all in the history of science. It culminates with a visit to the library with its collection of artifacts associated with Darwin and Wallace, including first editions of their books On the Origin of Species and The Malay Archipelago. Regardless of how you visit, if you walk through the doors of the Linnaean Society, you'll accomplish something that neither Darwin nor Wallace did, as neither was actually present in 1858 for the reading of their paper on natural selection. Wallace was still in Indonesia, 
while Darwin was suffering from one of the many bouts of illness that would plague his later life. It's also worth noting that, at the time, the Linnaean Society occupied the wing of Burlington House that's now home to the Royal Academy, whose galleries you'll have to visit if you want to see the actual site of this pivotal moment. Nevertheless, the Linnaean Society is the final stop on this journey through the evolution of natural selection, because it so neatly ties together the past, present, and future of biology's most important idea. It was built around the collections of Carl von Linné, the Swedish naturalist who, though decidedly not an evolutionist himself, laid the foundation on which Darwin and Wallace would build. Why his work was important, and why his possessions are in London instead of Stockholm, is a story for another episode. The large portraits of Darwin and Wallace in the main lecture hall are a powerful reminder of how deep an impact natural selection had on the Victorian scientific community and on British culture as a whole. Even today, the Linnaean Society remains an important center for the study of evolutionary biology. The story we're following on this episode ends here, but the story of modern biology was just beginning. Natural selection would go on to become the grand unifying theory of the life sciences, and all you need to do is leaf through an issue of the Linnaean Society's journal to see how the field has grown over a century and a half. You'll encounter authors from across the globe and studies at scales ranging from genes to entire ecosystems. Most importantly, you'll see how natural selection, a surprisingly simple idea forged in the scientific crucible of 19th century London, is still allowing us to make sense of, and make better decisions in, fields as diverse as medicine and conservation. Thanks for joining me on the voyage after the beagle. As a paleontologist and a biologist, this is a story that's near and dear to my heart, and it was a trip to London in 2019 that inspired this podcast in the first place. If you want to visit the places I discussed yourself, head to our website, voyagepod.wordpress.com, and you can find details about all of them, including options for those of you who, like most of us in the age of COVID-19, are doing all your traveling digitally. While you're there, please take the time to suggest a destination for a future episode. Much as I enjoy rambling on about my favorite places and ideas, both you and I get more out of this podcast when we get to explore destinations that are new to me, so I'm always excited to hear about places that tell stories I haven't heard. And of course, the usual podcast plea applies. Please like and subscribe, and rate and review on the podcatcher of your choice. Most importantly, though, tell your friends. The music in this episode is a sample of what you might have heard in Darwin's London of the 1830s through 1850s. We led off with two pieces by Felix Mendelssohn, who was German, but who spent a great deal of time in Britain and was inspired by the landscape. You heard his musical homage to Fingal's Cave, one of Scotland's many geological wonders, and one that had fascinated Darwin's mentors, and a movement from his Scottish symphony. The piece currently playing in the background is the Serenata and Toccata, by Mendelssohn's protege and Britain's most prolific composer of the early Victorian era, William Sterndale Bennett, played here by Julian Hellaby. If you'd like to hear more of them, all three pieces are freely available on Wikimedia Commons. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me for all the voyages to come. (laughs) ¶¶